Hi, my name is Mandy Jackson Beverly, and I'm a bibliophile. Welcome to the Bookshop Podcast. If you're like me and love independent bookshops, buying books from human booksellers, listening to authors talk about their books, and learning about ancient books, you're in the perfect place. To help the show reach more people, please share with friends and family and on social media. And remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Your support is appreciated. You're listening to episode 161. Sophie Irwin grew up in Dorset before moving to South London after university. She spent several years working as an assistant editor before going freelance. Sophie has spent years immersed in the study of historical fiction, from a dissertation on why Georgette Heyer helped win World War II, to time spent in dusty stacks and old tombs doing detailed period research when writing her debut novel, A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting. Her love and passion for historical fiction bring a breath of fresh air and a contemporary energy to the genre. Sophie hopes to transport readers to Regency London, where ballrooms are more like battlegrounds. Hi, Sophie, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure, and I thoroughly enjoyed your book, A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting. I don't normally read a lot of romantic fiction, but the last few weeks I had three land on my desk, and I've enjoyed every single one. Yours particularly because I love historical fiction. Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. Now, A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting debuted at number three in the Sunday Times bestseller charts. That's quite an entrance for a debut author. How did it feel? Oh, that was mad. Yes, I still can't quite believe it. It feels unreal. But uh, yeah, that was a brilliant, brilliant moment. I was in a taxi at the time. So me and the taxi driver had like a really emotional moment together. Oh, how funny. Lovely. Yeah. (laughs) That's a moment you'll remember. Now, apart from Bridgerton, what do you think sparked the current interest in Regency romance? And where do you see this genre headed? Yeah, what a great question. So I think for me, so I actually did my dissertation on this this genre at university. And what I was looking at, actually, this is before obviously COVID all happened, was the fact that the popularity of Regency romance um, basically in the last hundred years has always peaked during times of national and international stress. So in the like, Second World War, there was a huge peak. In some of the most stressful times of the Cold War, there was a huge peak. There's another in the 90s. And so when lockdown first happened in sort of early 2020, it was really interesting because suddenly Regencies were all back in the charts and historical fiction romances that hadn't been published in years were suddenly trending with, you know, no marketing spend whatsoever, no no reprints, no rejecting, just, just out there, which, which was really interesting from my dissertation point of view, was really interesting to see. And I think it's because that there's a particular escapism that historical romance offers that is sort of extraordinary. Because it's not just it's not just escaping to somewhere different, but it's some time different, uh, and it's characters you can relate to, but against this sort of like rich, decadent, gorgeous backdrop um, in this world that we think of as safe and distant from our own. So I think there's like a particular draw that it has in times when we're going through something really stressful and sort of uncertain. So I wasn't really surprised to see it back, but it was then brilliant. Then also then Bridgerton then obviously came along that winter of 2020. Thank God, what a gift. That was gorgeous. And the casting was delicious. Ah, 
I know it was just like it was such like a gift it was like yes thank you thank you Shonda thank you for this um and it was brilliant because I think it just like showed so many new people about the genre and sort of invited a whole wealth of new readers to where we've you know welcome come on down it's great here yes you're right about that I may be slightly hooked on Regency romances now brilliant and I'm fascinated about what you said regarding the peak in Regency romance reading during times of stress around the world it makes perfect sense uh they're comforting to read you know most of them have a happy ending and that's something we could all do with right now yeah absolutely yeah and it's exciting because it's quite a young genre really in the scheme of things so we'll see what happens And you were saying you did your dissertation on Regency Romance. Where did you go to university? Uh, Oxford University. Oh, how wonderful. And I have a friend, another author, who is from Oxford, and he said the town is just gorgeous. So hopefully I'll get there one day. And you have a background in publishing at Harper Fiction, and the company preempted A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting. How was the transition from editor to author? Was it awkward in any way? On the one hand, it was brilliant because I'd already gone freelance by that point. So having my book back with my older team was fantastic because I still got to keep in touch with everybody and it was all people I knew. And that was um, that was such a lovely thing. And I think it made something that could have been very scary, really, really fun and familiar, um, which is a massive, massive plus. But it, it has also been so strange. Funnily enough, I think it's almost writing my second book where I found the transition hardest because I've really noticed that how being an editor can get in your own way as a writer because I've, I'm so self-critical as I go along and I'm always looking for like potholes and I'm like, oh, that doesn't work, that you can almost get a bit, yeah, a bit bogged down, a bit arrested, arrested and you can't just like get something down on paper and edit it later. And I find myself getting too edity when I'm supposed to be writing and that's the most difficult bit for me anyway. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I completely understand what you're saying. Now, in your view, how and where did women find their autonomy during the Regency period? Yeah, it's a tough question. Um, because it is, I think it is so um, specific to different women's experience during this time. So obviously, my books look at the sort of the rich and the wealthy and the fabulous, who had a very different experience as a class to all the other women in this period. What I would say is I think that what sometimes surprises people about the, the Regency was that it's actually a time of huge literacy and sort of the greatest literacy for women that had ever like been in England so far. So access-wise to education, obviously um, not many women went to school necessarily, but access to books and being able to read. And if you were a certain class of women, you know, going into a library and being able to read what you wanted was a huge sort of space of intellectual freedom that opened up for women if you were allowed to use it. So the caveat being that it sort of really depended on what who what men were around each woman and whether they were encouraging of education or not, whether they were encouraging of women's independence or not. So the richer and the more upper class you got, the more, I guess, opportunities for autonomy you had but it still was massively impacted by who's making the choices for you. So, for example, I was read um, Frances Burney, who was an author writing sort of, she was born before the Regency, but lived throughout the sort of until 1840. And her father was so sort of, I, got, I fell in love with him a little bit. It, reading her memoirs and her letters and everything, she was so supportive of her, so loved her, so, you know, wanted the best for her, that she was able to have a very intellectually free time that, 
um, almost made me sad for all the women that didn't get that because it sort of sort of depended on who you got as a dad, as a father, as a husband later on or whatever. So a difficult question, sorry, to answer. Yeah, and it's sad to think that this is still happening in parts of the world. Yeah, really sad. Okay, so let's talk about your book. In A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting, your main character, Kitty Talbot, befriends a young lady who spills the beans about a young man's annual income. The choice Kitty makes regarding this information is almost shocking to the reader. However, this ignites Kitty's character arc. She wrestles with her conscience and how much her goal and need to protect her family tears at her innate, kind character. Do you see this as a constant for women throughout history and one that women internally fight in the present day? I Well, I think it definitely is something that we are, well, because we're so encouraged and we so want to believe in this idea of sisterhood at the same time as being encouraged by society to be fight against each other uh, especially women on women I mean um yeah so I think it is definitely a sort of slightly universal battle especially when you think of I what what interests me about that scene is readers reactions to it because people are even more than I sort of intended really often shocked by that sort of slight cutthroatness that comes out in Kitty in that moment, um, which is brilliant because, you know, you want that, you want that strong reader reaction. And I'm always interested to know whether you would have had the same reaction if she were a man making that decision. Because I do also think that in fiction, in character, in you know business or in jobs, even we're very used to men being determined and cutthroat and go get them and we judge women so harshly for the same choices. So, yeah, so I do think there definitely has sort of a universal universal themes there that um, I was definitely hoping to tap into. Yeah, and it, well, it, and it was just, yeah, but it was so central to her character arc. Yes, it was. And it really helped the reader understand the dire situation that she was in. Yeah. But it was so funny because when I was reading that section, I knew what was coming. But I was hoping that she wouldn't make that choice. But of course, it was the only choice she could have made. And it definitely made the reader sit up and take notice. I know. And she just, but she has to do it. It's, yeah, brushing up against the line of what's morally unacceptable suddenly. Um, yeah, we had to, had to cross it in order to sort of, yeah, see her. And it was shocking. But like you said, you had to do it. It was good. And another section of your writing that I love is the humor. I read in an interview how you and your family would sit around and watch The Crown and start mimicking their voices. Yeah. (laughs) Which happened in our household quite a lot too. And part of your research was in reading letters from the Regency period. Did you find much humor in the writing? I mean, I've read some, I mean, I've read some very boring letters, I will say that as well. But yeah, I did read some really fun letters. I mean, Frances Burney and Jane Austen both wrote beautiful and very witty letters, which were all very helpful in sort of getting the humour of it. And I think because the humour is very specific and it's something about the very complex ways their sentences were all constructed. It's all sort of very delightful little witty turns of phrases and, you know, a joke that comes right at the end of the sentence and sort of a... um, just just a sort of an elegance to it, which, yeah, I did have to have to read a lot to try and imitate at the same time as I couldn't write the way that they wrote exactly in letters because it's just way too dense for our modern eyes. It then sort of becomes a bit um, labour labor intensive. Um, so it's trying to get the flavour of that without 
making it inaccessible was sort of the main thing I was trying to trying to do. But yes, some of these letters were just so brilliant and it makes me so sad that we don't write letters quite as much anymore. I suppose we text and that'll be the sort of the things we'll look back on, but yeah, they were beautiful. And I think journaling has seen a resurgence, especially since the pandemic began. Yeah. A facet of your book that I appreciated was Kitty's courage and outspokenness about the social injustices against the poor in her conversations with Lord Radcliffe. Was bringing this aspect into the story pre-planned or did you find it happening organically as Kitty's character developed? It was never something that I really sort of had a tick box in my head to to sort of to write on. I think because they're sort of because the sort of function of their their arc is sort of enemies to friends to lovers. I was really looking for what they were going to find really annoying about each other and what sort of um, experiences that they both had were going to clash against each other. So her irritation at his sort of um, naivety, really, and sort of the how his privileges blinded him to the choices people really have to make, just came up really naturally all the time because in his circles. He is able to decide, oh, I'm only going to marry for love because he doesn't, because he's rich enough to never have to worry about marrying for currency. So that sort of huge innate difference that divides them is along class lines, really. So, yeah, that was something that definitely sort of came up organically whenever I had them fighting. She was sort of that, she was pointing her finger in his face and telling him off for that. But at the same time, obviously, she's sort of upper. I'd say upper middle class, lower upper class. So she's she's never really had it as tough as a lot of people in this period did, but can still sort of see it more. But she's aware of it. And that's indicative of her kindness, her personality. Yes. And you dropped this in within the book subtly, which I appreciated. I thought it was wonderful. Oh, thank you. Oh, good, good. I'm glad. And were there elements you looked for when researching historical documents that you specifically required to write your novel? For example, the handwriting of the era, costumes, hair, and makeup? Gosh, yes. Loads. So, I mean, the difficulty is often in writing historical fiction. Uh, there's one part of it, which is just reading the big academic texts, getting a flavour for the history, what's going on when, what's happening this time. And then the other part of it is, what material is, are their blankets made out of? What what do the chairs look like? What's ever, it's like this sort of um, textual minutiae, which is actually often very hard to find out because you have to look in very specific places. So that's often what I was looking for in terms of really minute research, was trying to work out literally what, what they were eating, what times of day, very small things. Um, which a lot of a lot of index searching, a lot of um, a lot of walking down the down the shelves of libraries all the time, which was huge. But then the other one was yes, costume and fashion and food were the main things I really focused on, um, which was so much fun. Looking at fashion plates from the time and working out what my characters were going to wear. It's like sort of playing like dress up in my mind. I was like, oh, is she going to wear to this ball? Okay, let's find out. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds like fun. And the good thing about that era is you can turn to paintings to see what kind of plates they were using or how their hair looked. And of course, in the UK, you have so many fabulous museums. Absolutely. Sophie, you mentioned earlier you were working on your second book. Is it completed? Where are you in that manuscript? So first draft done, I'm now working on the second draft at the moment. So yeah, which is really exciting, but um, harder than I expected because suddenly... 
I mean, I had loads of time to work on book one and then suddenly book two is six months off you go. Um, so it was quite fast, um, but it's been really exciting and really enjoying it, um, which is great. So yeah, so it's about so it's the same sort of world, same time period, but it's about a woman called Eliza who, before the novel begins, does the marriage of convenience to a man much older than herself uh, in order to help her family, has quite an unhappy marriage for 10 years. But then fortunately, as the novel opens, um, he dies. Not just murder him, to be clear, but <laughs> she's suddenly rich and wealthy and titled and independent in a way she has never been before. So she sort of heads off to Bath to discover herself, really. Oh, and Bath is such a gorgeous city. Oh, isn't it? And there are also great bookshops in Bath. Have you been to Mr. B's Emporium? I have. Yes, I have. Yeah, it looks fabulous. And Nick Bottomley, the owner, has been on the show. It's another indie bookshop I can't wait to visit. Oh, it's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. Or oh, Goldsboro is also beautiful in Bath. It's got this, in this big old church. Oh, I'll have to check out that one too. And as we're talking about indie bookshops, what are you currently reading? Oh, what am I? So I'm actually rereading a rom-com called um, Red, White and Royal Blue. Then what about, um, yeah, the Prince of Wales and the first son going together? Um, that's what I'm currently reading because I can't quite face, when I'm writing, I can't quite face new books. And that's really funny and lighthearted and, yeah, very pacey, sort of zips along. And are you still working as a freelance editor? Yes, I am. So still, I mean, I'm sort of around the writing more um, now. But yes, yeah, so, so to some of my old authors I still work with and I still yeah, work with some just, yeah, mostly sort of structural and line edits as they come in, which is really fun. And getting back to what you were saying earlier about being an editor and now a writer, I'm sure it's difficult during that first draft not to get caught up in the edits. Yeah, you can get a bit too self-critical and sometimes you just, that's the main advice I always give is just to get something down on paper, just get it down and then you can do it. But that's what I'm really struggling against, against myself at the moment. Well, I wish you all the best getting through the hump of writing that second draft because I look forward to reading your next book. Oh, thank you. Sophie, it's been lovely having you on the show and chatting about your new book, A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. Well, this has been so lovely. It's been lovely meeting you. You've been listening to my conversation with Sophie Irwin, author of A Lady's Guide to Fortune Hunting. Make sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Mandy Jackson Beverly. And check out my website at mandyjacksonbeverly.com. And if you'd like to contribute to the coffee fund, go to thebookshoppodcast.brassbrout.com, click on the little orange heart in the right-hand corner of the page, and you can donate using PayPal. Your contributions support the production and editing costs of the show. For information regarding sponsoring an episode, email thebookshoppodcast at gmail.com. The Bookshop Podcast is produced by Mandy Jackson Beverly. Theme music provided by Brian Beverly. Executive assistant to Mandy, Adrian Otterhan. And graphic design by Francis Varala. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.